We'll begin this morning with a reading out of Exodus 12, starting in verse 1. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month is to be your beginning of months. It will be your first month of the year. Tell the whole community of Israel, On the tenth day of this month, they each must take a lamb for themselves, according to their families, a lamb for each household. If any household is too small for a lamb, the man and his next-door neighbor are to take a lamb according to the number of people. You will make your count for the lamb according to how much each one can eat. Your lamb must be perfect, a male, one year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. You must care for it until the 14th day of this month, and then the whole community of Israel will kill it around sundown. They will take some of the blood and put it on the two side posts and the top of the doorframe of the houses where they will eat it. They will eat the meat the same night. They will eat it roasted over the fire with bread made without yeast and with bitter herbs. Do not eat it raw or boiled in water, but roast it over the fire with its head, its legs, and its entrails. You must leave nothing until morning, but you must burn with fire whatever remains of it until morning. This is how you are to eat it, dressed to travel, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. You are to eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. I will pass through the land of Egypt in the same night, and I will attack all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both of humans and of animals. And on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are, so that when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And this plague will not fall on you to destroy you when I attack the land of Egypt. This day will become a memorial for you, and you will celebrate it as a festival to the Lord. You will celebrate it perpetually as a lasting ordinance. Let's pray. Lord, you remain steadfast. You have redeemed us with the blood of your son, just like you redeemed the people of Israel on this night in Egypt with the blood of the Passover lamb. Lord, we are thankful for that steadfastness. Lord, in this time, uh, as we gather together um, in our houses as families, maybe with a few friends or, or a few neighbors. Um, Lord, it, it seems like sometimes that, that we're seeing some plagues uh, amongst us. And, and Lord, uh, passages like this uh, just let us know that, that you remain faithful, that you continue to watch over us. And Lord, we believe that you will continue uh, to deliver us. Lord, be with us this morning as we worship. It's through your son's name we pray. Amen. Feel free to stop the recording now and worship the Lord. Our gospel reading is from Matthew 
chapter 18, starting in verse 15, Jesus continues to talk to his disciples, saying, If another member of the church sins against you, go and point out the fault when the two of you are alone. If the member listens to you, you have regained that one. But if you are not listened to, take one or two others along with you so that every word may be confirmed by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If the member refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if the offender refuses to listen even to the church, let such a one be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, truly I tell you, if two of you agree on earth about anything you ask, it will be done for you by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, I am there among them. This is the word of the Lord. Feel free to stop the recording now and worship the Lord. Good morning, church. I miss you. I miss our common life together. I miss your hugs and smiles. I miss us all being together in one physical place. If this was a normal year, about now, we'd be doing the Bible Bowl practice round in the auditorium with the adults competing against our kids and teens. We'd be getting ready for our annual weekend with Lawrence Avenue with the cookout on Saturday and the combined worship on Sunday. We'd be telling stories about this past summer, about church camp and paddle day and summer Sunday nights together, and we'd be getting ready for Wednesday night suppers. But we're not, and I don't say that to be depressing. I say that to be honest. I'm grateful for how the Spirit has sustained our church. We're still connected to God and each other, even if it looks different. We're still serving our city, even if it's a tad more complicated. We're still a church. No pandemic can ever change that. But it's hard, and I miss you. On our Wednesday night Zoom this past week, I did a little poll. Which has been the hardest month of all this? March, April, May, June, July, August. And the clear top vote-getter was August. It wasn't even close. And I think that's a combination of fatigue, school complexities, and a steady barrage of sin on our news feeds. So together, we lament. We don't do this to be negative, cynical, or depressing. We do this to be honest and hopeful. Lament is honest hope. As followers of Jesus, we are committed to truth. As Ryan said several weeks ago, lament is the language which truth makes possible. It's true that life can be hard. It's true that 2020 has offered unique challenges. But it's also true that God is with us. God will not abandon us. And this is what lament clings to. So we're in our second week on the book of Lamentations. This is our fourth week total on lament. And next week we'll wrap up with Psalm 137, perhaps one of the hardest laments to process. But let's finish up our conversation on Lamentations. Quick review. Around 600 B.C., the Babylonians, led by Nebuchadnezzar, 
invaded Jerusalem. The Jews interpreted that as divine judgment based on hundreds of years of prophetic rebukes due to their sin. Nebuchadnezzar takes some of their best and brightest, such as Daniel, and takes them back to Babylon. And he warns them, keep the taxes coming, no more rebellion. Unfortunately, they double-cross Babylon and they try to cut a deal with the Egyptians. They give voice to following God, but their actions show a greater trust in political maneuvers and physical power. Maybe you've seen that one before. Anyway, the Babylonians return around 589 BC and they lay siege. And the siege lasts, historians think, anywhere from like 18 to 30 months. Around 586 BC, they break through the city walls and they burn the temple to the ground. And last week, we discussed in grave detail the atrocities that took place. It's some of the darkest content in all the Bible. We framed lament as returning to the worst moment of your life in hopes that God would show up and reframe it all. For the Jews, this was the worst moment of their collective history. The destruction of Solomon's great temple. The exiles preserved these five poems known as Lamentations, and they clung to them in hopes that God would bring light out of darkness, life out of death. And an amazing thing happens when you read Lamentations. Suddenly, in the middle of the five poems, a glimpse of hope surfaces. It's like driving through Kansas, eastern Colorado, only to see the Rocky Mountains come out of nowhere. Suddenly, the ground shifts. Many scholars see this center as the climactic meaning of the five poems, the substantive meat of the sandwich, so to speak. Out of the chaos, we receive some of the most beautiful and hopeful words of the Old Testament. This is Lamentations chapter 3, 22 through 32. Lamentations chapter 3, 22 through 32. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed. For his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. I say to myself, The Lord is my portion, therefore I will wait for him. The Lord is good to those whose hope is in him, to the one who seeks him. It is good to wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man to bear the yoke while he is young. Let him sit alone in silence, for the Lord has laid it on him. Let him bury his face in the dust. There may yet be hope. Let him offer his cheek to the one who would strike him, and let him be filled with disgrace. For no one is cast off by the Lord forever. Though he brings grief, he will show compassion. So great is his unfailing love. This is God's word. This comforting, optimistic passage seems so out of place. How can you look at the devastation, the death, and the suffering of innocent children only to say this? You can only say this if you're committed to a truth that present circumstances seem to cloud. You can only say this if you're committed to a truth that will prevail in the future. You can only say this if you know something, someone that seems so far off to everyone else. So what is it that the writer knows? Three things. God is love. God is good. God is faithful. Surely, 
many experiencing the destruction might want to argue those points, and yet they cling to them. God is love. God is good. God is faithful. Reflect on that. Let me phrase it in the negative. God is not a God of hate. God is not a God of evil. God is not a God that abandons love, goodness, faithfulness. These words describe our God. And the exiles clung to these truths despite their circumstances. They prayed that a loving, good, and faithful God would do something in the future. And God did. This story did not represent the end of the Jews or the end of Jerusalem. They did not become a casualty of human history. God demonstrated faithfulness. In 70 years, a group of exiles came back from Babylon to rebuild Jerusalem. The prophet Jeremiah, sometimes credited as the author of Lamentations, prophesied this in Jeremiah 29. And I want to read Jeremiah 29, 10-13. You may remember this. as To me, it's always like the classic graduation verse. But it's so much deeper than that. Jeremiah 29, 10-13. This is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. Then you will call on me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart." According to Jeremiah, God would not forever abandon his people. He was right. Eventually, Persia conquers Babylon. We receive this story in the book of Daniel. Remember, that was the handwriting on the wall. You may remember that story. Cyrus the Great rules the Persian Empire, and he allows some of the exiles to return, led by Zerubbabel. And their return aligns with the timetable of 70 years prophesied by Jeremiah. Now, you probably remember the books in the Bible um, entitled Ezra and Nehemiah and, and what those guys did. Some decades later, Ezra and Nehemiah come back to Jerusalem to help with the revival through initiating temple worship and rebuilding the walls. So Ezra and Nehemiah are the stories, not immediately 70 years later, but the eventual stories of the rebuilding and the revival that took place. The exiles made it back. Let that soak in. The Jews outlasted the Babylonians. The Jews outlasted Nebuchadnezzar, the guy that burned it to the ground. The Jews did not recede from history. And a few hundred years later, Jesus will be born into the Jewish people. God kept his promise to Abraham. Our God keeps his promises. God will never abandon his people. And if we have the courage to venture into the dark stories... We come out with this hopeful reminder. This is what laments offer. Be honest about how bad things are, but tell the truth. And the truth is this. God is good. God is love. God is faithful. So last week I told you a story. I told you about some of my pain, specifically around my mother's death in my childhood. And I always hesitate to do that. I, I don't want to be dramatic, and I don't want to assume I'm the only one that has pain. Every single person in our church has pain. And I told you about a few months I spent in counseling years ago, and I went to process some, some pain that I was experiencing in my present. But everything 
quickly and ultimately funneled back towards this one moment that difficult weekend so long ago when I was on a stretcher in a hallway and I felt as alone as I've ever felt in my entire life. I was telling that to my counselor and he asked, if you could go back and say something to that eight-year-old self, what would you say? And I like that question. I threw it out to you. If you could revisit yourself in your darkest moment, what message would you have? And I'm convinced your, your answer to this question reveals a lot. And if you don't know what you'd say, that's okay. I understand. But I encourage you to sit with that if possible. Spend time and lament, and I think God will meet you there. So when my counselor asked me, what would your present self say to your past self, I paused for about 10 seconds, and then I said this to my old self. Things will get better. And as I talk to you now, I realize I could have polished that up a bit. <laughs> I could have made it sound more spiritual, more tweetable. But that's what I said. That's what I meant. That's what I live by. Things will get better. Because God is good, loving, and faithful, things will get better. You see, in your darkest moment, as you process your loss, your mind goes this direction. What if the pain I'm experiencing now never goes away? What if the feeling I have right now never leaves? What if I feel like this every day? What if I never smile or laugh again? What if I never come back from Babylon? But God has taught me this in life, in scripture, and in the testimony of the historical church. Things will get better. In my life, every dark period ultimately got better. I've never received all the explanations I desire. Life is not perfect. But life, every time I had a deep valley, life ultimately did trend upward and got better, even if not completely and even if not in every way. God makes things better over time. And I live by this. Over the years, I've had to try it out on other situations. And to be clear, I don't offer friends glib, trite statements, but I, I wonder if the mantra, things will get better, applies. When my friend lost their dad way too early, when my student got cancer, when my friend got a 25-year sentence to prison, when my family member lost his job, and in most every situation, even though it's hard, the truth seems to hold up. Things will get better. Because God is loving, good, and faithful, things will get better, just as they did for the exiles. But there are some situations where the mantra seems tested. Terminal situations. Death seems to test this truth of things will get better. For someone on their deathbed, does it hold true? For someone with stage 4 cancer, does it hold true? For someone on death row, does it hold true? For Jeremiah, who ended up being taken against his will to Egypt and died there, never seeing the exiles return, did it hold true for him? These questions present the greatest test of that beautiful refrain, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. They present a test of that wondrous line, no one is cast off from the Lord forever. Does the promise hold true? Things will get better. And there's only one way for it to prove true. Resurrection. 
There's only one way for the mantra, things will get better, to be certain. Resurrection. If we don't come back to life, then I can't say things will get better. If we don't come back to life, I might have some days that will get better, but ultimately, life will always end on a low note with death. But if we come back to life, death becomes a transition into something better. You don't see a lot of clear-cut descriptions of resurrection in the Old Testament. It would seem that beliefs on the resurrection grow and develop over what we call the intertestamental period. This is between Malachi, the end of the Old Testament, and Matthew, the beginning of the New Testament. By the New Testament era, resurrection is a lively debate, with the Sadducees not believing in it and the Pharisees believing in it. Many Jews believed in it. Among the exiles, though, we do see some hints of a developing description of the resurrection. Specifically, consider the story of Ezekiel. He's a prophet like Jeremiah. Unlike him, though... Ezekiel gets taken to Babylon, and he dies there. He, he never gets back. He never sees the return. God speaks many wondrous prophecies through him. And my favorite comes from Ezekiel 37, what we think of as the Valley of the Dry Bones. In the vision, God tells Ezekiel to speak to a valley of skeletons. And as he does, the Spirit of God raises them from the dead. And so this valley of skeletons becomes a valley of real people, humans that are living. And we then have this promise in the vision. This is verse 13 and 14 of Ezekiel 37. Ezekiel 37, 13 and 14. And you shall know that I am the Lord. When I open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people, and I will put my spirit within you and you shall live and I will place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. I have spoken, and I will do it, declares the Lord. Even as Ezekiel was on his deathbed in Babylon, and even as Jeremiah was on his deathbed in Egypt, you could truthfully say to them, things will get better. Why? Because God raises his people from the dead. God's people live forever. And of course, this only happens because of the power of Jesus, his incarnation, crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension. Lament is returning to the worst thing that has ever happened and patiently waiting for God to show up. It's tough to do. It hurts. It involves far more vulnerability and risk than we're normally comfortable with. It's easier to avoid it. But if you face and name your pain in truth, God will show up. Family, I don't know all the details of what you are carrying, but I know you're carrying a lot. And I want you to know that we are all with you. I want you to know that you are not alone. And I want you to know this. Things will get better. Because God is good, loving, and faithful things will get better. Jesus proved that. Years ago, on the worst day of my life, I hit rock bottom as my mother died. And if I could go back and talk to myself on that day, I would say this, things will get better. And God has proved that true in my life. 
But I would also do this. I would stand over my mother's casket later that week, and I would proclaim over her dead body, things will get better. Because that statement was not just true for me. It's true for her. It's true for her now. Because right now, I believe she is with Jesus. And as I think of that, I can't help but smile. But I can't fully embrace that goodness unless I'm willing to go back to the worst day. You can't have the resurrection without the cross. Lament is good for us. We need to do it more. Family, let's tell the truth. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. And we will live with Jesus forever. Things will get better. Please take a moment to uh, to worship God and to prepare your hearts and minds uh, for communion. For today's communion meditation, I'd like to read a section from Psalm 77. I cry aloud to God, aloud to God, that he may hear me. In the day of my trouble, I seek the Lord. In the night... My hand is stretched out without wearying. My soul refuses to be comforted. I think of God, and I moan, I meditate, and my spirit faints. You keep my eyelids from closing. I am so troubled that I cannot speak. I consider the days of old, and remember the years of long ago. I commune with my heart in the night, and I meditate and search my spirit. Will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Has his steadfast love ceased forever? Are his promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in his anger shut up his compassion? And I say, it is my grief that the right hand of the Most High has changed. I will call to mind the deeds of the Lord. I will remember your wonders of old. I will meditate on all your work and muse on your mighty deeds. Your way, O God, is holy. What God is so great as our God? You are the God who works wonders. You have displayed your might among the peoples. With your strong arm, you redeemed your people, the descendants of Jacob and Joseph. Let's pray together. Holy God, we confess that it's not always easy to meditate on your work on your mighty deeds found within Scripture. It's not always easy to sing hymns of praise with joy in our hearts or pray with hopeful expectation. While we yearn to trust in your promises, to trust your love and mercy are ever-present, we have seen and experienced the reality of pain, of deceit, fear, and unrest, both in our own lives and in the world we walk through each day. When that reality silences our souls, we plead for you to grant us faith to trust in your love and hope in your word that all will be well, that your kingdom will wash over the earth with mercy and justice, and the presence that we feast upon in this sacred meal will bring ultimate healing 
and rest. We pray this in the name of Jesus, the one who has died, who has risen, and who will come again. Amen. Romans 13, 8-14 Let no doubt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. For whoever loves others has fulfilled the law. The commandments, You shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And what whatever other commands there may be are summed up in this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. And do this, understanding the present time. The hour has already come for you to wake up from your slumber, because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. The night is nearly over, the day is almost here. So let us put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave decently, as in the daytime, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and debauchery, not in dissension and jealousy. Rather, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ and do not think about how to gratify the desires of the flesh. Holy Father, we praise you for your goodness and mercy. We're thankful to you for your love for us, which demonstrates how we are to love one another. Help us to abound in your love for our neighbors and Put that love above matters of race, class, politics, and all the other things that we're constantly being told that should divide us. We pray for peace and unity. We pray for healing for our communities. Help us to be the light on the hill that illuminates the path where others may experience your love. Forgive us when we sin, and in all things may your will be done. In Jesus' name, amen. Good morning, everyone. It is hard to believe it's now been almost six months since our last quote-unquote regular service in the building. Kind of missed the days we had a lot of different things to announce, a lot of things in our calendar, and we look forward to that changing and uh, going back to that a normal way soon. Don't have any anniversaries this week. We do have one birthday, though. Edison Beard, congratulations. You've got it all to yourself. Turning nine on Wednesday the 9th. Happy birthday, Edison. We do have one announcement this week. JP did send out an email on the 2nd about an upcoming fall retreat on October 16th through the 18th. It looks like it's a hybrid of a virtual and some socially distanced activities. Look for more details soon. Let's do continue to pray for all those on the prayer list. And that is all I've got. Under a minute again, it looks like. Everyone have a great week and God bless. You've been listening to 900 Ackland Avenue, the podcast for the Ackland Avenue Church of Christ. If you'd like more information about our community, our church website is http colon slash slash org. Thanks again for joining us. God bless.